everybody. Welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, we are continuing on with our series devoted to focusing on the artists behind the indelible hits of the 80s. And it doesn't get much more indelible than this track right here, Obsession. So our guest this week is Bill Wadhams, who was one of the co-frontmen of the band behind this, Animotion. Now, this song, I think, reached number five in 1985. I mean, it was huge then. It remains fairly huge now. I mean, everybody knows this song. It was a pillar of the new wave movement of pop radio. It It's huge. But you'll find out when you listen to Bill's story here that with that kind of notoriety, there was some bitter sweetness to it as well. I mean, imagine this. If you're moving to LA because you want to make it as a musician and you have a vision and goals and talents and then you enter into a group which is a great group promising group but you become world famous for a song that you didn't write that doesn't sound like anything else you do really and the imagery of you duetting with co-front woman Astrid Plain which they did beautifully the imagery behind co- uh, duetting with her is so cemented in people's minds that you aren't really taken seriously on your own. And so even though you become world famous, you lose a little bit of your soul or your goals in the process. And that can't be easy. And Bill articulates a lot of that here in this conversation. However, there's redemption to this story. I'm recording this on Friday, January 20th, and today, Animotion released their first album in 26 years. It's called Raise Your Expectations, and it's wonderful. It is just what you would want from an 80s new wave pop band to sound like today. And I'm happy to say, after listening to the album, it sounds like, and this I mean this as no disrespect to Astrid or anyone else, it largely feels like Bill's album. It's him doing what he does best. It is so wonderful, guys. And when when Bill and I talked in early December, I hadn't heard the album. It was still a ways away. So he talks about it, but I couldn't react as if I knew what what these songs sounded like. But I, I'm here to tell you it's worth the 10 bucks. I think it was $9.99 on iTunes. Do it. Bill is a great guy. He was unfortunately suffering from a cold, so he wasn't 100%, but he's still a good man. He called me from his home in Portland. First of all, I have to tell you why it's so surreal that I would be talking to you, because I realized as we were gearing up for this conversation that in 1985, I was 12 years old. And I I realized now, I, I knew it then too, but I wanted to be you. I, I oh. think because, I did, I think because I grew up in a religious household, I was kind of drawn to rock stars with shorter hair. I thought that's, yeah. that's my kind of rock star, I could, because I could look like that. You know, I'm not going to grow my hair long. I want to look like that guy. You know, I'm a happily married father of three, but maybe it was like a first kind of man crush or something. I just right. wanted, you had, your head was such a perfect triangle, you know, and uh, <laughs> you had these, those great kind of, you know, deep eyes and the carved jawline and the, the suit. And I just thought that's a rock star that I could get behind. In fact, a couple years later, I had cut out a picture of you and I took it to the lady that cuts my hair. And I said, could you oh. make me look like this? And she said, I could, but it would require a perm. And I said, well, oh. that's too, that's a bridge too far for me, you know, because only girls got perms. I was, I, that, oh, was, that wasn't manly enough for me. So anyway, 
I just wanted you to know that you played a role in a very formative period of my life. I saw you, and I thought, that's a guy that I want to look like. He looks cool. I should make an, a little nod to a wonderful uh, person who used to cut my hair in those days. You know, I was actually I was in a band before Animotion called Avalon. There were meant to be two front people, Rick and Chris. And I was supposed to be the lead guitarist. They even said to me they wanted me to be, you know, like Mike, the lead guitarist in uh, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. They Mm -hmm. wanted him to be kind of like the third, kind of like an important person, but not the singer. They eventually fired me from the band because... I was insisting on singing some songs, and they said, we just can't have three front people. Right. <laughs> but, but in the meantime, I, I had never really found sort of a, a fine hair cutter, stylish person, uh-huh. or even a salon that really meant anything to me. And there was a salon in California, in I guess Woodland Hills maybe, uh, north of Los Angeles, uh, mm-hmm. Called Cassandra 2000, and they were they were so hip, they were incredibly <laughs> hip. Cut to many years later when I met uh, my wife Kate. Turns out she had had some experience with Cassandra 2000, and <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so this woman named Diane Cote was cutting my hair, and she would shape it, and because you know, and I didn't think of it as a conservative haircut i thought it was like pretty 80s radical you know yeah. there are some pictures actually we just recently posted some pictures on facebook that you could absolutely say it was a big mullet and i uh-huh. you know I, I don't think the term mullet had been coined until after right. sometime after right. that date but but it was definitely it wasn't super short on the sides but she she had me high on the top and full in the back and funnily enough if that's even a word, I know people use it, but I don't know if it's it's proper. <laughs> but um, I don't know. but later on, uh, Vidal Sassoon chose to put me in a hair commercial, like a a print thing. In in really? uh, it was it, it appeared in many magazines, including Vanity Fair and Rolling Stone magazine, and it wow. was a multi-page spread that had an Olympic athlete. And it had some other people. I was the musician. They they actually had Andy Warhol was in the Vidal Sassoon no ad also. Each of us with a different product. And so I was always on the page with Andy Warhol. And uh, it was because I had some big hair. And so wow. that's a big side trip. But it was one of the biggest paid, paydays in my musical career. I believe it. Was, yeah. was getting paid to be in a Vidal Sassoon ad. <laughs> wow. Well, so I wasn't the only one moved by your uh, by your hairdo. I have to no, say, it had, I, I you know, it, yeah. betrayed by the time <laughs> you went full Richard Marks by the second, oh, letter, no. by the oh, second no. album. I was like, where's my short hair guy? Come on. Oh. Why, you know, can't we, he left the tribe. I felt a little bit betrayed by that I, point. But yeah. it's okay. I still, I still love you, and I remember those moments very well. Anyway, thank you. Okay, yeah. Well, cool. I just wanted you to know that you had had a you'd had an impact on my life. Do you ever? I mean, do you ever get recognized today? I know that you're a regular guy with a regular job for the most part. Do you yeah. get recognized anywhere, like in airports or st- something? You know what? It's 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 very rare, but it it does happen occasionally. 
you know, I live in Portland, Oregon, and occasionally someone in Portland <clears throat> Portland will say, hey, you're, you're that guy from Animotion, because they might have heard through a friend or they might have read an article or, you know, I, I will mm-hmm. play in Portland. So in the Portland area, I'm Portland, Oregon area, I might be recognized, you know, somebody might say, oh, yeah. I saw you or whatever. But, mm-hmm. but other than that, very rarely um, somebody will just like tap my shoulder in an airport and say, I, I got to say, I know who you are and, and yada, yada. But um, <laughs> it's pretty rare. You know, there was an, there was an arc of popularity Mm -hmm. Uh, of course you know it goes from obscurity and then because we were very early mtv it just went up like a rocket to where i went from complete obscurity to being recognized every time i went out the door even you know in even the first time we went to foreign countries i was recognized as soon as i got up really but that's the power of mtv at the time so short answer the question not so much Okay. You know, okay, I, I was curious. I, I, unless I'm, in, unless we're out playing a gig with, with a flock of seagulls and human league sure. and people like that, and and somebody knows that we're in the area and yeah. they say, oh, there's there's that guy and there's that guy. Okay. Yeah, I um I live in Denver, but I drove to Salt Lake City. I think it was in September to see the Lost Eighties tour with you in it. Oh, cool. You don't know this, but we got our picture taken. And I had posted it <laughs> on Facebook, and Jim Walker said, "Hey, there's Bill. I know Bill." And oh, um, nice. Yeah, and uh, I thought you looked pretty much the same. So I th- I wondered if other people, you know, you had such a distinctive look. I wondered if other people were still kind of hanging on to that or ever ever recognizing you for it. I, I got to admit, I don't even really know how Animotion came together. And that's a little bit of a leading question because I, I want to – Yeah. There's a there's a certain kind of – and you – I'll tell you, I'm, I, by pure coincidence, I'm reading the Mad World book right now. You guys are the second to last chapter. Right. And I've read that chapter a couple of times, and you mentioned in there that there was this kind of an, a perception, a sort of monkey's perception to the band. And it's funny you said that because I've always sort of thought that too. Like, were they, I don't imagine, I can't envision these guys like in a garage, you know, or gigging in like, you know, little clubs. They feel like they came together for a reason. What's the, right. how did it all begin? Well, I want to make one comment about the Mad World book, and that is that we were approached by the Mad World writers uh, in a very, I don't know, respectful way, I want to say, or uh-huh. kind way. Okay. And I, I've hardly ever been more disappointed and really uh, ups, upset by the chapter that they wrote because, first of all, the introduction to the paragraph yeah. pretty much pretty much slammed us in every possible way that you could including mm-hmm. saying we had the most horrendous name that a, a band could ever yeah. have, which is in direct contrast to um, another book saying we had like one of the best names of the eighties, you know? So it's oh. like, why would someone choose to say yeah. things like that after having invited us to be part of a book? I don't like their commentary. I don't like the way it was edited. It just, yeah. to me, our entry in that Mad World book was mean spirited, and uh, I, I'm sorry that I, you know, um, oh, that's too talked bad. To, to talk to them. So that's yeah. that's all I have to say about that. But okay. um, but I will but I will tell you a bit of um, the uh, you know I, I'll give you a condensed version of how we came together. I had my own band in Los Angeles for a number of years. 
I called it Billy Bond. I, I was Billy Bond. And okay. a manager saw me, and he thought that I would be a good partner to Astrid Plain. Oh, and got it. Astrid Plain had been in this band Red Zone, which hmm. shows up in a lot of stories about Animotion. Red Zone broke up. Her manager had seen me, thought we would be a good match. So he invited me to meet Astrid and what was the beginnings of, of Animotion, which was uh, some of the other members of the original group. And um, none of them was writing songs, and I was a songwriter. So they said, if you'll come into this band, you will be the songwriter and lead singer with Astrid, hmm. co-lead singer and guitarist and and we have a recording budget and we have a manager and we have a lawyer which were um three things i didn't have <laughs> right time. right right so i thought sure i'll take this uh you know I, I will i will explore this possibility i started rehearsing with them we started to do some shows together and i think it was in less than six months uh, we had a, a record deal offered to us, and it was going to be all based on my writing uh, with with this band. And um, so we signed a deal. We started recording our album, and after we had recorded half of it, uh, the producer left town for a little bit, came back, and he said, have you guys heard Relax by Frankie Goes to Hollywood? And we said, Yes. And he said, uh -huh. well, I've got a song from a publisher called Obsession, and I think it could be a hit for, for you guys, and we're going to do it in that kind of, we're going to approach it in that way. Yeah, and so um, provocative, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, this was in contrast to what he had said when we started the record, which was, this, is a, this will be a rock and roll record. Mm -hmm. There will be no dance music. Yeah. And there had been we had we'd been watching like what was happening in the synth world and everything and and Astrid in particular was really fond of Human League. I really liked the song Fascination and she was like, mm -hmm. This is cool and he was yeah. like, uh 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 producer was like, No And my <laughs> stuff was yeah, my stuff was influenced by sixties and seventies rock and I 
right. you know, really it was more it was more like the police and dire straits than what you would know uh-huh. animotion from. So right. when we finished the album, we put it out, and when Obsession became a hit, uh, it created a bit of a, a stress for me because my songs didn't sound like Obsession. So um, I actually had publishers saying, well, and, and, and I wrote the second single, which was called Let Him Go, but, but uh, yep. it got into the top 40, but they would, people would say, but Bill, that wasn't, uh, it wasn't right. a top 10 hit. You know, yeah, man. it wasn't so, big enough. Uh, yeah, and it wasn't big enough. Anyway, and then coming in, coming into our second album, everybody in the band was a writer. You know what? They wrote some good things, so I'm sure. You know, I'm I'm proud of them and happy for them. And and one of the things that when I look back, I wish that I'd written more with Greg and Don in particular, uh, and Astrid because they were emerging writers, and and I think that we would have been stronger together. Um, yeah. Where, Do you yeah. know what it was that they saw in you and in Astrid that motivated them to think that you, the two of you needed to be together? Because it wasn't, I mean, I think you've made it very clear. In fact, when I saw you at the Salt Lake gig, and I have a feeling you probably do this at a lot of your shows, you're like, did everyone, did you guys always think Astrid, Astrid and I were a couple? Because it, yeah. I think you wanted to make it clear, like, we are not a couple. In fact, you in the book, anyway, you're dating someone else. She's with the bass player. So it wasn't, I mean, it couldn't have been, you know, a sexual chemistry unless although it was at first and became something different later. What was that magical thing that they were seeing? Well, the guy who signed us uh, is the quintessential record company man. I believe his name is Russ Regan, and I believe he signed Elton John. He gave the Beach Boys their name. I mean, they were struggling to, you know, things like that. Okay. I mean, he's been around okay. for so long. So he's and probably like a Clive Davis figure, like an impresario exactly. that has like I, the magic touch. Ooh, this ingredient here mixed with this ingredient there is going to make he, some magic. Yeah. Okay. He is actually a very legend. You know, he's right up there with Clive Davis in terms of yeah. the number of acts he signed and the direction that he gave to those acts. And he came to a rehearsal of Animotion. We played about five songs. And he said, uh, here, come have a seat here, kids, on the, uh, you know, the, <laughs> the, 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 the rehearsal dirty couch yeah. kind of. And we sat around uh-huh. and he, he said, you know, I think that the two of you could be a Fleetwood Mac for the 80s, where you have, it's the guy and the girl, both of them sing their own songs, but then they also sing duets and they mix uh-huh. it up. So that is, that what to him was what he was putting together. Was he right, was, okay. He, he, an, a Fleetwood Mac for the 80s, exactly what he said. Yeah. You know, although Astrid and I, uh, in the early days, had some struggles with each other and conflicts and that sort of thing. And yeah, she was with the bass player and she liked different music than I liked. There was a lot of things mm-hmm. that kind of worked against us. But on the other hand, both of us were kind of, we liked being on the stage. We both be, mm-hmm. liked being on the stage. We liked being dramatic. We liked singing. So we played a kind of a cat and mouse game on stage. Okay. Okay. And it took us it took us a long time to realize that the fact that we were different was a strength rather than yeah. a weakness. Okay. Yeah, makes sense. Remind me, was it Russ Regan who picked Obsession? I can't remember. Or was it no, the producer it was of the a, album? It was, a, it was a producer. It was a producer okay. who so, 
I'm not on very good terms with the producer. He's okay. So I, okay. you know, I'm going to we'll just give, leave. Okay. I'm not going to give, I'm not going to give him a nod, you know. Got it. The reason yeah. I ask is because I'm wondering what goes into, again, kind of like Russ Regan with you and Astrid. Yeah. What, I mean, people think, well, we've got this song. I'm imagining a guy, a very powerful guy sitting on a desk with like an inbox on one end and an outbox yeah. on the other end. Or like a dating mm-hmm. service. I've got this pile of hits, supposedly, at my disposal. Yeah. And then I've got this other pile of bands over here. And I need to mix and match them in such a way to get the best, the most success out of it. And I'm wondering if they were so sure. I mean, I don't mean this is any offense to you. But what, yeah. what do you think they saw in Animotion that made them think, I've got this song. I know it's a hit. I need It would go perfectly with this band Animotion. Even though... Half the music they've put it, they've recorded so far sounds nothing like this. Do you know? I mean, do you know why that occurred to them? They well, could have given it to an established artist. You know what I mean? Yeah. First, first of all, I have to say that the song "Obsession" was recorded by Holly Knight and Michael Daybar, yeah. and it was it was in the soundtrack for "A Night in Heaven," which was a roller disco yep. movie. <laughs> You are an obsession, I cannot sleep, I am a possession, unopened at your feet, there is no balance, no equality, be still, I will They released that song. I bought a vinyl record version of it. Um, uh-huh. So the, the song was released, was put in a movie. It had a chance to do something. Yeah. And it was also played by very talented people. I mean, Michael mm-hmm. Barr went on to sing with the Power Station. Yep. And, and you know, he's he's a very he's a great... A He's, He's a done a lot of stuff, and so is Holly career. Knight. So yep, yep. the song itself was put out there, and it didn't stick. And so, okay, you know, record company people often think they know what's going to be a yeah. hit, but they don't know what's going to be a no, hit. So what what it was was it was as simple as you know every record company was looking for you know maybe the next band, and 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 uh-huh. it, it was a more I think it was a more e- a little bit more easygoing open process than it is now because mm. they were looking for bands that they could cultivate. Whereas now I think if you're, if, if you don't have a hit out of the box, it's next, yeah. you know, yeah, but exactly. in our, in our case, he saw an English girl and a guy who could sing and write. And he thought, yeah. okay, here's a band that I think we could work with. And yeah. He he didn't say at that time. I don't hear a hit song. You got to find a hit song. Okay. But um, <clears throat> at least I don't know. Uh, but right. But when they came in with the song, I think they he said, I think this could be a hit for you. And Astrid said, 
she knew it was going to be a hit. I yeah. didn't think it was going to be. I didn't really? think it was going to. Be, yeah. Um, huh. <clears throat> I just didn't think. I mean, to me, the band was quirky, and uh-huh. it, I, I felt like a bit of a fish out of water. I had been the last person to to kind of join this group. So okay. whereas in all my other bands, I formed the bands, I picked the musicians, I you know, I set the stage. Yeah. This yeah. one, the stage was kind of set, and I, I had to provide the songs, but but still, um, <clears throat> if, if someone had said to me, hey, Bill, you have a choice. You can either be a guy in a band with a bunch of guys, or you can be a guy in a band who sings with a girl on stage all the time. For the rest uh-huh. of your, you know, <laughs> right, <laughs> you know, right. um, and uh, okay. I would not have chosen the duet as my okay. preferred like sure. thing that I was going to marry for for years. Yeah. So anyway, I mean that's a little side note, okay. but um, no, that's interesting. But, I mean that's kind of what I want to know. How long so, was that yeah. emotion together before? Um, now, I mean, did you come up through like the L.A. First of all, where did you move to L.A. from? Now you're getting into a little bit of the longer story, but I oh, I boy. was born in okay. Rot. Yeah, I, I no, I mean it's fine. You can edit what you want, but I sure I was born I was born in Rochester, New York, and then my oh. fam- family moved to the Washington D.C. suburbs of Maryland. So I was in Potomac, Maryland, Rockville, Maryland, for high school and one year of community college. Then my family moved to Fresno, California. Oh. For my okay. my dad, my dad had a business opportunity in the great city of Fresno, California, and so <laughs> right. my family, my family moved to Fresno, and then almost immediately, all the kids who could get in a car and drive went yeah. either to San Francisco or Los Angeles. So I went to L.A. I guess when I arrived, I was about oh, 23 years old, 24 years old. Okay. And I, but I'd been in bands since I was 11, really, uh, honestly. Really? <clears throat> I Music been, was always the plan. I was Writing, always in a band. Playing. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And uh, my brother, Tad, my brother, Tad is a, is a bass player. And when he was nine, he got a two page handwritten letter from Paul McCartney. No way. He, now there's a whole story there, but but essentially, my brother was in the hospital a lot of his childhood, and my father wrote letters to a number of people saying, "Could you write a letter to my son to cheer him up?" And one oh. of them was addressed Paul McCartney, Liverpool, England, and it was uh, picked up by one of Paul's family members, who prevailed upon him to write to my brother Tad. And wow. so he got this letter from Paul McCartney. My brother Tad became a bass player, became Cheryl Crow's bass player and oh, co-writer. Really? <clears throat> yeah. He was uh, on her first major tour. So he opened up for the Eagles with her and wow. played, you know, did a bunch of stuff. Yeah. Is he still in the game somewhere in the business? He is. Um he has most recently, uh, well, just last weekend, he played with me in uh, um, at a gig in Florida. He was with Sheryl Crow. He was with two songwriters, singer-songwriters named Lowen and Navarro for many years. 
their biggest hit was they they wrote the song "We Belong" for Pat Benatar. Sure, that's how I know that name. Yeah, okay. But but they but they've done a lot. They they toured a lot themselves, and I, and I think okay. he might have been playing with Lowen and Navarro when Cheryl Crow spotted him in a club in Los Angeles and asked him to be in her band right on the heels of when her first album was coming out. And I'll never forget him yeah. saying, hey, you know, I'm backing up another female singer-songwriter who has a record deal. And, you know, that was the one that really took off. Jeez. Wow. But um, so he and I were playing in Los Angeles. You know, we were making headway like everybody else. We were recording demos. We were trying to find connections. We were playing in the clubs. And, you know, okay. and then, then I bumped into the people that would become and emotion and that like took off like wildfire. And then, yeah, that's what I'm getting. I mean, I I can't obsession becoming as huge as it was. I mean, it just swallowed up. I would think any, any other songs, any other music creativity that you wanted to put out in the world. I mean, there was no getting around or overshadowing or even coming toe to toe with obsession. I mean, maybe you didn't know that till later, but that was the hope. Like, we've had one big hit. Maybe we can have another one that we wrote on our terms. It was Goliath, Yeah. you know? It was too hard yeah. to get around, probably. Right. And the so second album, I think, uh, I really uh, the second album to me feels like chock full of hits, where I can see the delineation in the first album between the music that you guys were doing pre-Obsession and then the singles. Yeah. second one to me sounds very you know produced with the idea of let's get these these songs on the radio and yet that's the one that kind of slipped away you know
Yeah, well, I can tell you a very short and, you know. Level the, 42? The story behind, you know, the, well, how did, well, oh, well, you, yeah, you saw something about that. In yeah, the in the Mad book. World it mentions book. in the book, but it's yeah. But essentially, yeah, essentially it was in the days of Paola and the, record company was mm. the president of the record company was being investigated for payola one week we were in new york city having dinner with executives who told us we were going to be their biggest selling act of the year and then um two weeks later you know our first single on that album was i engineer It had, like was going top ten in Miami and top ten in Seattle, and you know they were talking about like connecting the dots, and we were on our way to a big hit, and MTV had put us out with a world world premiere, and you oh, know wow. everything was rolling, and then all of a sudden they we we saw this article saying that our label was going to boycott independent promotion, and we asked mm. the in-house promotion person, what does that mean? And she said, that means your record is not even going to get walked into the radio station because we don't have the manpower to do it without the independent promoters. So so the train just sort of stopped, you know, and then they, I think they put out a second single, but again, it was just sort of like, it was a half-hearted attempt. And then shortly after that, the guy who signed us um, moved over to another label, leaving us with someone who couldn't really care that much. He just didn't care that much yeah. about us, and he told us so the first day we met him. So now it was like, okay, we're in really big trouble here. And uh, yeah, and the but didn't um, they think? I mean, I I feel like this is a, and this is a common topic that comes up in most of the interviews I've done, and I've done almost a hundred of these. It's always something political inside. It's almost never about the band. It's something going on internally and something that just consistently boggles my mind is if a record company has an asset that is valuable, like Mm -hmm. Animotion, why do you not work harder to capitalize an existing asset? Why do you ground the asset? Why do you bury the asset? And because you've been out there as a proven Hitmaker. Granted, the second single wasn't as big as the first one, but there's still name recognition. There's people know yeah. you in Astrid's faces. You could get a right. you can get a video. So why do they bury their assets? I never understand that. I think really what it comes down to is individual decision making, just to, like anything else. And yeah. in the in the case of the new A and R guy who came in. He had an idea about what he thought he wanted to do with the band. 
and it was in disagreement with what I thought should be done with yeah. the band. We actually had an agreement from a producer named Stephen Haig, who oh, had just yeah, produced. <clears throat> yeah, he just produced Thompson Twins, Howard mm-hmm. Jones, Tina Turner. Yeah. You know, The Fix, yeah. Red Skies at yeah. Night. I mean, all those, sure. all of those things were right up our alley. And they had agreed to record us <clears throat> in this really cool studio called The Farm in, in rural mm-hmm. England, where we would mm-hmm. go live out in England for a month <laughs> and record that album. And it, and it was going to come in under budget. So what is wrong with that picture? Nothing. And, right. But... <clears throat> this asshole named Bob Scoro decided that he wanted us to be produced by someone who had been working on, uh, he, he wanted us, he literally told us he wanted to be more like heart and starship. Oh, <clears throat> more oh. mainstream, okay. mainstream, mm-hmm. big rock. And at the time, heart and starship, had given up their personal writing in exchange mm-hmm. for Hollywood hitmaker writers. Yeah. Yeah. So, yep. you know, yep. Hart had gone from Barracuda to these dreams. Yep. A yep. big power ballad, you know, and you mm-hmm. had the people mm-hmm. like Holly Knight and Diane Warren writing their hits mm-hmm. now. And, and everybody's thinking that we're going to outsmart the business. We have figured mm-hmm. it out. We're going to just, you know, we're going to just mm-hmm. use hit writers and we're going to, you know, corner the market. And so I think to this guy, he thought he was going to be a big hero by manipulating our group into something that he thought was more viable because he was negating our success by saying, you didn't yeah. write obsession, so it's not really yeah. you that made the hit. So I'm going to take what I think is worthwhile and and yeah. I want you to work with these guys that that he, this local L.A. producer, whatever, this just worked on the Starship uh-huh. album. And I couldn't get him to have a decent face-to-face conversation mm-hmm. with me um, or to really get down and talk about songs with me at one yeah. point. At one point, you know, he was he was just rejecting everything I wrote. And one point he said, OK, I like this song here, except that you have a line that says downtown underground revolution is the sound. He said, revolution is not what animotion is about. You guys are nice, happy. Yeah. Honest to God. He said, change, change the lyric and I'll consider putting it on the album. Oh my God. Take out the revolution thing. And I thought, wow. "Wow." So I wrote downtown underground, getting in tighter to the sound. Oh, there you go. See, you that's know, what animotion is all about, Bill. Getting it tighter to the sound. It's not about revolution. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so it was huh. it was an uphill battle that I wasn't yeah. winning, and and yeah. so I announced to them that I'm out. And yeah. uh, I, I I also had you. at the time. Oh, <clears throat> I had one other thing playing me at the time was that my ex-wife. She's my ex-wife now. Um, okay. At the time, she said, "If you don't leave this band, I'm leaving you." So I had that, oh. pl- you know, working against me mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, at the time. So I, you know, yeah. And I think that if you really 
if you dig down to so many of these bands that that were you know really had a lot of potential and were great in so many ways but somehow they managed to implode you'll find that a lot of it had to do with emotional decisions the heat of the moment you know and then they took a left turn where if they had just kind of stayed the course or in the mm-hmm. case of animotion if we had spent more time trying to come to terms with each other so that we had a unified front uh we wouldn't have been divided and conquered yeah 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 it's it's uh it's come up many times in other conversations very similar things wives laying down ultimatums and stuff like that i've heard it now you when you left one thing i noticed is that um did you leave music altogether when you left animotion did you try to make other bands happen were there other people wanting to collaborate with you did you play on other people's what happened after that it seemed like you just went away yeah well for the first year especially after that i was in a couple different studios writing and recording and at one point a producer who had worked with duran duran and tracy chapman he had heard a couple songs he called me up and said we are going to make an album so i thought that i'd landed in the right place he loved the first two songs and he wanted to hear more material i was providing him with more songs and and then asking okay what's next and mm-hmm. so basically he strung me along for about 6 months before just sort of mm. stopping to answer my phone okay. calls and and yeah. i i don't know exactly what happened there it was okay. one of those things where i went down a path and that didn't work then i got yeah. together with someone else and i was writing and we were producing some stuff together and then his manager called me up and said we we want you to pay us so many thousands of dollars per song just to do this project you know and so what? my my really? second attempt <clears throat> yeah my my second Weird. attempt at getting something off the ground stalled. Then I yeah. put together then I put together kind of like again kind of a roots kind of a live band and we were uh-huh. you know we were working on something. But simultaneous with that, I got a job as a graphic designer at NBC, mm. and I was loving the job. Oh, and good. It was okay. It was pay, it was paying me well, and I was just having such a good time. Good. Everybody, I everybody that I knew in the music biz was tearing their hair out, you know. So yeah, I was <clears throat> having a great time, and then uh, my wife got pregnant, and she said, "Let's get the heck out of L.A." and we mm-hmm. moved to Vancouver, B.C. <clears throat> Why? Yeah, it's a long it's a nice story, place. but she. Oh, okay. It's because it's gorgeous, and because yeah, this was my, uh, um, you know, this was someone who didn't like to be in LA, wanted to be in a clean environment. And I kind of, you know, to a certain degree, I went along with the like, okay, let's just, let's just leave all this bullshit and go to a Mm -hmm. clean environment and start a new life. And so, you know, that's what we did. Uh, But then we, we got up there and, you know, you know, things didn't go as, as I would have liked them up in Vancouver, BC. And then I migrated down to Portland when I when I got to Portland, Oregon, I started playing solo, uh, acoustic guitar solo in pubs, and mm-hmm. 
this was right around the time that Amy Mann started doing kind of a solo. Oh, right. And I really, at that time I thought this is what I should be doing. And, but I still was, now I was working for like the number one ad agency in the United States called Wyden and Kennedy working on Nike and stuff. And it was just, Oh, it's too much fun. And are you still on Nike? No, no, I'm not. Um, Anyway. I'm not doing that, but, but yeah. So then I I met a sweet guy here in in Portland who owned a recording studio, and the two of us spent three years creating an album that we put out in about 1999. And oh, I really? had hopes. Yeah, the band was called Black Barrel, and I even played showcases in Las Vegas at a big festival. No I um, <clears throat> yeah, and I uh, I you know, tried to, I sent it out to labels and, you know, I tried to get a little something going. Sure. I, I must've been like, I guess, you know, so anyway, I tried to, I tried to stir it up then and, and that, that didn't happen. And then very shortly after that, somebody asked me if I'd appear as bill of animotion at an event and they would pay me to do that. And I said, well, maybe it's time to yeah. call up Astrid and see if she would appear with me. And yeah. she did, and it became the beginning of a reunion in 2001. How often do you play those shows? And also, I was curious, now, uh, you had mentioned earlier, you and I were going to talk last week, and you couldn't because you were going to be leaving for a corporate gig in Florida. Was that yeah. an Animotion corporate gig, or was that a Bill corporate gig? Well, it's kind of a hybrid. Um, okay, what, but did Astrid yeah. go with you? She didn't on this one. Okay. Um, okay. No, I actually. So how often do you do those things then? We almost never do corporate things. I mean, not that we wouldn't do it if they were offered to us, but <clears throat> it's usually we're usually uh, invited to play in kind of big eighty shows. Yeah. Like, right. Yeah. Yeah. The, like, like the Lost one you 80s. saw. Like the one I saw. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. How often do you do those? Once a year. I would say, like, let's see, 2015, we 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 did fewer than usual. We did only, like, four of them, I think. But the okay. year before, I think we might have done ten. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. So the point, the kind of the reason I'm asking is because your primary, again, we're going back to the money. Like I mentioned, we talk about the okay. money side of all this. And yeah. um, you can be, you know, I'm I'm trying to be sensitive, so just tell me to shut up if I go too far or whatever. Okay. But I assume you... Because I, <laughs> I've seen you post a couple of uh, Facebook Live videos of you, I think, on your way to work in the morning. So I assume you still go to your office every day as a graphic designer, and that's your primary source of income. Um, I get the impression, based on the Mad World book, that you didn't don't, didn't then don't continue to make too much money off of obsession, not enough right. to live off of anyway. You probably right. make a performance royalty, and that's maybe about it, or whatever. And then, yeah. but then you do the the '80s gigs too. So it sounds yeah. like you've got uh, three. You know, you've got a full time job, you've got a rock star part time job, and you've got mailbox money that's probably okay. And I mean, am I on the right track here, or could you do one of those only, or do you need to do all three to like stay interested, stay viable? What? How do you how do you decide that? Well, I think I decided like most folks in the 
in the world and sort of like you figure out what you're doing, what your yeah. responsibilities are, what you want to do, and then figure out how you're going to get there. And in my case, performance royalties, the really the only royalties we get are from um, digital radio, like uh, mm. Sirius and those kind okay. of things. And it's not enough to live on. And then my graphic design job, you know, I'm actually only working 30 hours a week now. I really enjoy it. I work with a good group of people. <clears throat> I like the, like the, like them, like the job. And I want to kind of keep that going for for a little while because um, it just works for me. And then over over the years, honestly, really, for almost the last 15 years, I've had one sort of idea or another about how I could put together the um, a really good mix of acts that would be compatible with animation, and we could kind of be autonomous, have our own thing, like mm. a, <clears throat> you know, um, have a. Is this like a super fact, group, or are you looking to promote well, a concert series, or what? You know, it's kind of like any, all of the above. I kind years ago, years ago, a good friend of mine was in kind of the tr- trade show business. Um, okay, and and he he said, you know, he was telling me that you know, bands make a make a lot of money with big corporate gigs, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And he said, let's <clears throat> put together a show of 80s people and we started to do that um we called we were going to call it lead singers of the 80s and mm. i had i had agreements from richard page of mr mister oh and, yeah uh, i've been trying to get and, him on here yeah so richard and um tommy two tone and uh, uh martha wash from the weather yep. girls and you know everybody mm-hmm. da- you know everybody dance now and all that i had like a, i i at a certain point I had like 10 people who had agreed to to do this if we could pull it together it would be a single backing band and then mm-hmm. and, you know it's kind of like in a way almost like what the idea was almost like what um ringo star does yeah yeah <clears throat> where he's got an an all-star band and everybody sings their mm-hmm. stuff and Matter of fact, Richard Page has been in that band now, the Ringo Starr yeah. band, for a couple of years. He has, yep. So he was he was game for that. I was trying to sell that idea, but I had a, you know, I kind of backed off of it when, you know, booking agents were saying to me, we can only sell it if we can call it Mr. Mr. Animotion, Tommy Two-Tone, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. if you can By really name. list the yeah. name of the bands, not like. Yeah. By the time you go, Richard Page, the lead singer of this, and the, this person, yeah. it's just yeah. the, it doesn't work on a marquee. <clears throat> yep. So, got it. Anyway, I you know other than that, we, we have to rely on you know who will who you know booking Animotion. It mm-hmm. just um, if we put our name on a marquee, then it people know the song more than the name mm-hmm. really, mm-hmm. and yeah. so. Um, it's just, a, it's, it, it, it works better if we, if we get together with other bands. And so, sure, sure. and then every, every band has its own quirks and a story like, yeah, you know, so, I mean, you know, I mean, when you go out to yeah. see, like we, we just did a, 
we did this massive show in Los Angeles last summer with Human League, and Human League, to their credit, really was, you know, um, the Human Human League with the, the three yeah. singers. Sure. Uh, I love them. I've seen them live and a then, bunch. Yeah, and they were just phenomenal. Um, but it was Tom Bailey of the Thompson Twins mm-hmm. by himself. Mm-hmm. Phenomenal yep. show, but it was Tom yeah. Bailey of the Thompson Twins. Yep. It was Mark Almond of Soft Cell. You know, mm-hmm. and it's yep. Martin Fry of ABC. It's not right. You know, so yep. it's 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 a lot of that that, but they but but they carry the name. They're able to carry mm-hmm. the name, or or you know, anyway. Uh, maybe my idea is selling more now. You know, because they're mm-hmm. they're putting this kind of thing together. But I would have loved it if I'd been able to brainstorm and said, "Hey, wow, you know, what a great idea." Yeah, um, you know, there's there's the Rewind Festival in the, in the UK, and they do right. something like this. They have they have an all star band, and then they sure. fly people in, and they have the singers from different things. Um, yep, and and that works. And I'd love to be you know included in that. But at any do you rate, ever get invited to stuff like that? We've knocked on the door of Rewind, and and now that we have a new album coming out that with a label yeah, in the UK, I ask you about this. Yeah, we we might. Maybe maybe we got a shot at it this year, but okay. but other way, you know. So the, the, in terms of doing shows, by the time we travel there, and, yeah. and Animotion was always kind of a big band, and so in terms of like six people is the full mm-hmm. you know complement, mm-hmm. and um, you know we often play as just five people, but by the time you get everybody there and put everybody in a hotel and all yeah. that sort of stuff, there is not. There really isn't enough profit to live on. Sure. Okay. That's what I've heard from other places. I want to know about your new album. Because sure. no one in the world would have expected that new music coming from Animotion. And uh, and I think, did you say when I saw you guys live, did you do record some of this at Abbey Road? We didn't record it at Abbey Road, but it was mastered at Abbey Road. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That, I mean... Matter of fact... Yeah, we had just had Your it. Your creative that juices Abbey. must be going crazy. <clears throat> I mean, are, do you are you having like flashbacks of the good times when you were a rock star, or is this? Do you come into this with very low expectations and just think this one's for me? I I need some closure here on the Animotion chapter, and this is it. What do you think is going to happen? First of all, let me say that for years, Astro and I, in particular, have discussed doing an album, you know, creating another album together. Ever since sure. ever ever since Astrid and I hugged, laughed, cried, made up, all that uh-huh. and decided that that and you know, obsession and our success is kind of bigger than the both of us and if we have an opportunity to do something again, we will try to do that. And then, you know, the advent of home recording meant that there's really a lot you can do at home. Um a lot you can do with um I, I work in logic and mm-hmm. you know I've done some pro tools and logic and all that sort of stuff, automation, all kinds of crazy things. And so over the years we have done a bunch of things that really sounded like demos. And we mm. we 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 no matter how we tried doing doing it ourselves and even coming going into a few you know, kind of smaller studios it just mm-hmm. wasn't sounding like a real contender of an album. Oh, okay. Um, 
and and it really wasn't i don't think really it wasn't a matter of the songs it was just kind of like the you know the the quality of someone who really knows how to produce a record and engineer a record and mix it and master it that's mm-hmm. the main thing so what happened was uh i was recording stuff at home and I heard a remix of Obsession by Joey Mancuso, also known as Joman. We'll just call him okay. Joman. Mm-hmm. I, I heard a mix of Obsession by Joman. Time, Joman, this is maybe a couple years ago, Joman was a 26-year-old DJ in Denver, Colorado. Mm. And he, he's there. I should know now, who yeah, he is. That's where, I, that's where yeah. he is. Okay. So Joman, J-O-M-A-N, uh, I heard his remix of Obsession. I loved it. And I contacted him, uh, I forget how, maybe through his website or something. I said, I just want you to know I love that mix. He got back to me and said, "If there's any, if if you ever have any new music you want me to like do anything with, I would mm-hmm. love to." So oh, wow. I sent him the song "Raise Your Expectations." I sent him the you know my recorded parts, the very you know the individual parts, mm-hmm. the voices, mm-hmm. the guitars, the <clears throat> all that. He essentially completely replaced the rhythm, completely replaced the bass and uh, remixed it and sent it back to me. And that version, I was thrilled with it, of course. I was thrilled. Mm-hmm. And and I sent that version to a guy named Steve Thorpe in London. And Steve had worked with uh, Universal Mu- Music Group at re- re-releasing our first two albums. He okay. wrote the liner. He wrote the liner notes. He was He was part of a company that was re-releasing our first two albums and he said to me if you ever have new material let me know because i might know someone who would put it out so now i had raise your expectations and i took another song you love it and i sent it to joey joman and he sent that back and i sent those two songs to steve he gave them to charles kennedy who owns invisible hands music the label and Charles Kennedy contacted me and said, based on these two songs produced by Joman, I would absolutely love to do an Animotion album. 
crazy, crazy. Yeah. That's great. And so, so then I came back to Astrid and Greg and Don, and I said, we have a record deal in London, and and here's Amazing. you know I said here's what Joman did with the songs. Now Greg had played on Razor Expectations, and Don had played on Razor Expectations in a little studio down in L.A. We they tracked with me mm-hmm. down there. And, you know, I had my own mix and I'd have played it for a few people. And they said, song is great. Mix is crappy. So oh. that's when I sent, I sent it to Joman. And now it mm-hmm. came back sounding like a record. So I yeah. sent, so it really was an emotion um, because it did have Don and Greg and Astrid. And I sent right. that to London. We got a record deal. And then, when Don heard the guitarist, Don heard the new version of Razor Expectations. He said, listen, that's cool, but I've been writing some music that I think would be appropriate for our album with Chuck Kentis, who is the musical director for Rod Stewart's band. Oh, and Don Kirk, Don Kirkpatrick has been in Rod Stewart's band for the last 15 years. So, Mm. um, so Don wow. and Chuck have been playing together in Rod's band professionally, and <clears throat> they've even done some co-writing with Rod. And Chuck has has produced uh, John Waite and oh, even nice. Mar- Martin Fry and some other people out of his studio. Right. So wow. they were like, we should get together and write some new stuff together with Chuck. So I flew to to Las Vegas and met with um, Chuck and Don because they were in residence with Rod at the time. They're always mm. traveling, and, but they were going to be stuck in Vegas for three weeks with, because they're playing like 10 shows with Rod there or something. And I said, well, why don't I come to Vegas where you're, you know, you're going to be. Yeah. And they said, okay. So I went out there and in, I think in two days of writing and recording, we had, five songs that are all on the album. Interesting. And they weren't, wow. they weren't, they weren't done, but the, the basics of the music and the melody and some of the lyrics were done. And then I flew back to Los Angeles to record in Chuck's studio again. And so then we would take uh, the first three songs and we would finish them up or, you know, put, overdub and and take them further and so your question was something along the lines of what does it feel like to be doing a new album after all this Mm -hmm. time yeah is is it just kind of like you know well i'll tell you what it is for me to be in a vocal booth was the most wonderful experience of singing to a beautiful track that was well produced yeah. and the guy has set up you know a fine microphone through a well-made compressor in a yeah. quiet room i i have four children and two grandchildren and i my main goal as a musician is that i would leave this earth with something that i can be proud of that will not necessarily be more popular than than obsession. It feels like this would have to be, in some ways, what you always wanted. 
And even with all the success in initially, you didn't get what you wanted as a musician and as an artist out of it. And this sounds like it's more what you'd always hoped and dreamed of, I'm assuming. And so to be getting that now as a dad and a granddad and as a graphic designer and a guy who's trying to hang in there and keep his legacy alive, to finally have that kind of, to be experiencing that kind of moment finally, that's got to be very satisfying and well-deserved, I would assume. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for the soliloquy. I appreciate that. You know, and... Uh, you know, I, I really, my, one of my favorite songs on the album is They Can't Touch You. Don't have to give more than you want of what they want. Don't have to say that it's true when it's only one. If it's just Don came came into the hotel room that I was staying in and he played this guitar part that opens the song and he asked me, he said, sing something, sing something, sing something. Mm-hmm. So I just sang this melody that has become the chorus and he said, that's it. I mean, it just came out just like that fast. He just said, sing wow. something. I sang it. That, be- that became the chorus. And then <clears throat> when we went back into the studio he flushed out the music with chuck and then we went to lunch and then he said and we were talking and i was telling him about my youngest son going off to new york city and then london and paris and milan as a model which is is not what he had planned to do not what we thought he would do but he was invited to do this he was just 18 at the time and about to go off into the world and into a world where he would be judged in probably a harsh way, which is, mm-hmm. you know, which is true. And he was willing to jump out there and put himself out there. And he's had very high highs and low lows. So I was telling Don about what he was going through. And we went back into the studio and they just said, sing about that. Oh. And so, so I'm singing, if they don't seem to respect you, then you have no reason to stay. Mm. And so, so now being in the studio 
having this blissful moment of being an really feeling like I'm being an artist that is putting something down that will be that I can really be proud of and then having it be really close to what's going on in my life and my concern yeah. for my kid. Yeah. And it's also yeah. has resonance with my other sons and my daughter later on when I heard it, the first mix coming back, I could have been singing to myself, you know, if they don't mm-hmm. seem to respect you in flipping yeah. Hollywood, then maybe right. you should walk away from that situation. So again, the record, you know, this particular record in many ways has been my chance to to connect with the other, you know, to connect with Greg and Don and Astrid and, and yeah. Chuck as a producer and to have fun with amazing synth sounds, which are reminiscent of the 80s. So for me, the journey of this has been incredibly fulfilling and we feel the band members and we we feel that there is a chance that it will be heard, but we know that there's a lot of good music out there. There's a lot of sure. product out there. There's a lot of noise. And our record is going to be released in the same week as Donald Trump is being inaugurated as the next president, which in itself is just oh, surreal. Man. So, oh, you know, well, so... Uh, something good you know, has to happen that week. It can be the new yeah. Animotion album. Yeah. Right. Well, good. I can't wait to hear it. I think it's kind of amazing. And you deserve it. You deserve this moment after all these years. I really think so. Well, thank you for for saying that. I don't I don't know, you know, I, I I don't I don't know about deserving anything. I but I just think that if people will listen to it that they will hear you know, it's really uh the best that we could possibly do yeah. whether it's 1985 or 2017. Well, I can't wait to hear it. Um okay, you've been more than gracious with your time. This has been, I can't believe, I'm st- it's still surreal that I'm talking to you of all people. But I want to know, like, tell me one of your favorite rock star stories. You are the guy behind one of the biggest songs of all time at a very heady time in the music industry. I can only imagine the sorts of things that you saw and experienced. What are some of the first, most vivid, crazy, out-of-this-world memories that jump to mind when you're sitting at your cube working on your graphic design in Portland and you think, and the guy sitting across from you, some new young millennial who has no idea what Animotion is or that you were a rock star for a while. What do you think he would blow his mind if he knew? Well, it's funny because I was just <clears throat> sitting in the office. I think it was yesterday when Billie Jean came on the radio. There you go. <laughs> uh, Michael Jackson. And I, <clears throat> I said, you know, I was working in that recording studio while they were recording that album. And this was before Animotion. Oh, I was answering, I was, I was answering phones in the evening at that studio uh, huh. while Quincy Jones and Michael Jackson oh, were man. recording the album. And I was fired because they told me I was too interested in my own musical career. And that's because <laughs> I asked Michael, I said, Michael, um, I, I'd only, I only saw Michael once. I mean, he'd kind of come in the back door, whatever he was very, you know, I just, I didn't see much of him. Sure. And once I went back into the coffee room or to make coffee or something 
and he was in there. And I said, Michael, I just want to ask you one thing about writing. When you're writing, do you write on an instrument like a piano or guitar, or do you just do melody and lyric just in the open air? Uh And I think his answer was something like, well, sometimes I do one thing and sometimes I do another, you know. And <clears throat> that was about it. And then shortly thereafter, right. I was fired for being too interested in, you know, somehow oh. developing, wa- wanting to develop. Um, <clears throat> but so that's that's one little that you know anecdote I tell. But but yeah. once I <clears throat> once I actually had some, you know, when when I was in Animotion, one of my most surreal evenings was backstage at the Montreux Rock Festival in a green room with Mick Hucknell from. Uh, oh yeah, simply, simply red. Simply red, and yeah. Billy Ocean, oh, Billy Ocean, Caribbean Billy Queen, Ocean, yes. and yeah. uh, uh, the Eurythmics. Yeah, and Mick Hucknell was giving Billy Ocean a really hard time because Billy was going to lip sync instead of sing live, and oh. and all the artists had a choice of either lip syncing or singing live. We sang live, Mick Hucknell was singing live, um, Billy Ocean was going to sing the track, and so he was getting a lot of shit from Mick Hucknell. But <clears throat> in the meantime, I saw Annie Lennox kind of leaning against a bar by herself. And uh-huh. I walked over to her and introduced myself, and she she was the most gracious, kind, oh, sweet, engaging person one of the mo- yeah i i would say in in terms of sort of like encounters during my career uh-huh. i i often tell people that was the most delightful bar none because she yes. was so sweet and humble and interested great it's just what you want from her you yeah. hope she's like that you know yeah yeah that's great did you ever meet any yeah. heroes or play a particularly big or meaningful concert that was kind of mind-blowing? I mean, I um, guess Michael Jackson's a hero, but I wondered if there was something else. Yeah. You were a Steely um, Dan fan. Did you ever get to tell I, Donald Fagan I, I, how great you thought he was? <laughs> I, I've, I've never gotten a, had a chance to, to, um, to tell him that, but uh, I don't know. You know, okay. my, my experience was always a yin-yang type. It was amazing, wonderful, and at the same time, there was always something about it <laughs> that <Yeah. laughs> you wish it was a little different. <laughs> you know? Yeah, like, I can imagine. I, mean, I can imagine. It's amazing to stand in front of twenty-five thousand people who were cheering. At the same time, you feel like an ant, like you want to make huge, <laughs> sweeping moves because they didn't have big screens in those days. So right, you felt true. like. I better dance like with this big, huge sweeping thing so they can see uh-huh. me in the back. You know, I've always enjoyed playing for, uh, you know, 1,500, 2,000 people that you can, you can practically see every face when you're yeah. doing that. And you, mm. you, you really, it's very visceral. I really, I've always liked yeah. that a lot. That's great. That's great. But, well, you know, look, I, I mean, I, I no, never, I, I never met my my heroes like um, Eric Clapton and mm. Steve Winwood and and uh, Pete Winwood. Townsend, you know, uh, all these yeah. guys. 
I was really happy to meet Tom Bailey of Thompson Twins, and he was super him. sweet, and, and I, he did a, a great show. You know, I've met a lot of my contemporaries, uh, and they've been, you know, I, I can't really complain about anybody. So I'll leave you with one, one thought, and yeah. that is yeah. <clears throat> here's a typical Animotion evening preparing for a show. Um, we get to we get to a huge stadium in and we we're playing with eight bands and they're all uh-huh. great eighties bands and we arrive and we say where's our dressing room? Well, we're, they're not sure where our dressing room is. We can see the uh-huh. names of all the other bands on the hallway and right. <clears throat> we're walking down with our gear. We've walked in and we're like where's ours? And then somebody says, okay, I think they're opening up a room for you on the other side of the venue. There's a big sports arena. And, <clears throat> and finally we make round and the place and the doors locked. And so then we have to find somebody else and we finally get a key and we feel kind of like we're the, we're the stepchildren. We're way on the right. other side of the thing. And then right. we walk by the stage and there's no time for us to sound check. Well, everybody else, it seems like everybody else is sound yeah. checking except for us. And we feel like we're getting the bums rush, and I'm the, I'm the manager of the band, so I feel it's my duty to get pissed off at the stage manager, who then sure. you know says of you know don't ever go off on me or you'll never you know. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> the setup to the show is really like I'm grinding my teeth, but then it comes time for us to go on stage. Now the venue is full. And it's lights, camera, action. It's just phenomenal crowd. Uh-huh. And a couple other bands are going on. There's, and now it's time for us. And I'm walking from the dressing room with my guitar towards the back entrance of the venue, hearing this huge roar. And I, I just kind of checked myself. And I thought, man, I'm walking up on stage again with yeah. my guitar. You know, all that other stuff aside... And then I walk up, launch into a song I wrote called Let Him Go. And, I, man, she is loving that moment. And yeah. my son is on bass. My son, Chris, yeah. has replaced her ex-husband since right. she's, he, he's replaced her ex-husband on bass. And it's just an incredible, wonderful, sweet moment. And it's, it's, it's everything that I kind of want, but I have to go through all this bullshit to get to that moment. (laughs) And, (laughs) and, you know, so. so, That's the best. I don't think anyone's ever put it like that, but that is the reality of it. I love it. That's the reality of it. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, look, I love you a lot, and I just wanted – I'm so grateful that you talked to me. And I want to tell you one quick little thing that I thought. So we were going to originally talk last night, and you went to a birthday party. And so I don't know if you – there was recently this eight-part documentary on on PBS called Sound Breaking. And it's about – I think it was produced or had something to do with George Martin. He's in it a lot. I think he had something to do with producing it. And it's fascinating. If you have, like, on demand, you should find it. Yeah. And – um. It's all about production and mixing and audio uh, engineering and what goes into making the sounds on the albums that we love. And I was watching it last night. I watched episode four, and it's called called Going Electric. And it's interesting that you mentioned Clapton, Steve Winwood, and The Who, because they were all featured in this. So it starts out talking about 
when and why and how guitars became amplified, and then that turns into the Who, it turns into Jimi Hendrix, it turns into Cream, it turns into all that stuff. Then it shifts gears and starts talking about synthesizers, and then you it comes up with Brian Eno and uh, the two guys. I forget their name, but they were producing those block of perfect albums that Stevie Wonder made in the 70s. Yeah. And then it shows for about 20 seconds, 10, 20 seconds, the Obsession video. And you, there's you in your Mark Antony uh, costume and everything. And I just was thinking all day, what a, I don't know if you think about this in these terms, Bill, but here is a program with some of the greatest minds that have ever created popular music behind the scenes being talked about, being studied, wanting to know how these people do what they do. And for 10 to 20 seconds in this show, they needed to show obsession. They didn't play the Human League. They didn't play the Pet Shop Boys. They didn't play Erasure. They played you. And I thought, <laughs> and I thought, I just thought, there's my guy, you know? And we were, and, and I, was, I knew I'd be talking about you the next night. And here you just mentioned three of the people who are featured in this program. And I just thought, whether you, I'm sure you know it, but I just want, if, in case you forget sometimes, obviously you and your band and your songs are part of the fabric of popular culture that will live on forever and ever and ever. And you have a piece in that. And I think that's really interesting. And so, anyway, I want you to know that I knew that, I guess, if nothing else. Well... You know, um, thank you for telling me. Today, uh, Astrid sent me a text saying, a friend of mine just said we were in a TV show last night. Do you think there's any money in this for us? <laughs> and, uh, yes. and, um, and I was like, honey, I don't think so because they would have told me. But, but that's because we, have our, we, we, we recreated the master. So we've been, in, we've been in a bunch of movies and TV with our master, and then we do make some money. Um, Good, but I didn't know any more about that show until you just told me. But the fact that you just mentioned Winwood and and yeah. Jimi Hendrix and yeah. Clapton yeah. and The Who yeah. and then me, yeah, and Stevie Wonder and Brian Eno and, and you—that's mind-boggling. Yeah, that's my that that makes me feel like in one of those moments where where you know you kind of look around and you go, yeah. Is, am I in, like, the video game? There you have it, Bill Wadhams. I'm really, really happy for him. Again, I'm recording this on the day that his new al- the new album by Animotion comes out, and I've just been seeing on Facebook his enthusiasm to present it to the world, fans' enthusiasm in their reception of it. He deserves it, and I'm so happy for him, and I can't stress it enough. If you just love pop, new wave, music, go get it. It's worth it. Now, as I've mentioned before, we're also in sort of a a sub-series within the indelible hits of the 80s. We're talking to artists who performed in last summer's Lost 80s live tour. And next week, we are going to be talking to the husband and wife team of Valerie Day and John Smith of New Shoes. They are maybe the loveliest married couple you will ever hear from in your life. So I'm really excited to talk to them and have you hear that conversation as well. If this is your first time joining us, 
please go into the archives and find some old episodes. Look for bands that you like. And this is what we do. We try to talk about what is the emotional, psychological, and financial impact of rock stardom, however brief that might be. And we tend to focus on the people where it was a little brief. You can write us a review. You can just subscribe in iTunes or whatever your podcatcher is, and then you get it every week. We come out with new episodes every Tuesday. You can find us on Facebook. You can send me a message if there's an artist that you miss that you don't hear from often enough, and we can try and track them down. You can send me an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. Huge thanks, as always, to Yan the Man Makevich for putting everything together. Thank you, Yan, for all that you do. I wanted to close it out with, you know, Animotion is widely regarded usually as a one-hit wonder, but they did have one other song crack the top 40, and it's this one, Let Him Go, which reached, I think, number 39, also in 1985 or 86. Great song. We'll talk to you all later. Thanks, everybody. Yeah,